Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Coming to you from my house, it's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm NPR's pop culture correspondent and the host of Pop Culture Happy Hour. I thought we'd replay one of our favorite ever Bullseye interviews this week, David Diggs. David has one of the most varied resumes in entertainment. He starred in the original cast of Hamilton, playing Thomas Jefferson and the Marquis de Lafayette. He's an actor on screen, too. He's starring in Snowpiercer, the TV series based on the Bong Joon-ho film of the same name. You might have also seen him in Undone, Blackish, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, among others. He's a voice now in the new animated musical series, Central Park. He's also a writer. He and his friend Rafael Casal co-wrote the screenplay for Blind Spotting, a movie about police violence and gentrification in Oakland, their hometown. Diggs and Casal also co-star in the film, and it's brilliant. And he's in Clipping. It's a rap group he's the MC for, along with producers William Hudson and Jonathan Snipes. Clipping gets called experimental a whole lot. The producers build the beats out of weird samples, beer bottles, alarm clocks. They collaborate with noise artists. And David never raps in the first person, which is, you know, hard. It's unusual. When Jesse talked with David last year, Clipping had just released an album called There Existed an Addiction to Blood. Let's listen to a track from that record. This one's called Nothing is Safe. Barely had to summon what was coming. It was creeping on the come up that was right up in your face. Face it, let it resonate up in your bone a minute. When your shiver make us live a big enough for it to have a space. Ripped life. Stepping away, maybe you can make it out with just a little bit of grace. But it truly doesn't give a fuck about the thing you're feeling. It is here to make you understand that nothing is safe. Nothing is, nothing is safe. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is safe. Nothing to pray for. Nothing is safe. Nothing is... Nothing is Death is coming for you, but you already knew that Thought the click up brought you some safety up in this pack But that didn't add up, back up, stand up, strike a pose What you got up, that's what they like you suppose They go rack up, stack up, that stuff that you stole But the fact of status wrapped up in black coat caskets cannot be ignored Running so fast, it had an award Homies got gas for cash from that score Y'all could have made a dash just after one more So you put up on the gas and smash round the corner Only one man was sent to the coroner Wasn't part of the plan, but damn the fast forward and Whip was too quick to flip and fast forward With the past smashed every wall, pillar, and floorboard Ashes to ashes, dust in the lung Fired out when everything gasoline been poured Last piece of action for you to come Just catch a glance of what could have done There's something about how we walks remind you of someone You look into a gun, a man with no face A golden halo that could be the sun David Diggs, welcome to Bullseye. It's so nice to have you on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. So I basically just wanted to start by asking you what kind of records you listened to when you were, uh, you know, 16-year-old, when it really counts. <laughs> when I was a 16-year-old, that's, that's good. That is when it counts. Okay, so at 16, I was, so my uh, my mom was a DJ in the in the. 70s and early 80s like a disco dj yeah yeah at a little spot that's still in berkeley called the graduate they used to have a basement that she used to used to be kind of like where she played and then at a bunch of other clubs around the bay area too but my mom and dad met at, at this place the graduate and so uh i grew up with her and then my dad's record collection also so i i sort of my first love was always like parliament funkadelic and anything on the on the funkier side of that disco stuff george duke um, Herbie Hancock, like a, a lot of the jazz fusion stuff. That's so I was always listening to that. But then at sixteen, wait, I have a further, I have a follow up question about your mom. Oh yeah, was she like a dance DJ? Was she like beat matching and stuff? Was it like yeah, oh party yeah, party forever type of DJ? Yeah, yeah. She was the she was a, in fact like the the folklore about it is that is that uh, when my dad went up to the to the DJ booth and asked if she had to stand up there all night or got to dance, she like looped the bridge to Kano's I'm Ready and came out into the into the crowd to dance with him. So like, you know. Uh, that song is like 20 minutes long anyway, right? So. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like one of those ones like Love to Love You that uh, right, right. that you famously put on in the radio booth when you need to go use the bathroom. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, no, she 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 was the real deal. 
So you what? So what were you listening to when you were sixteen? Um, on on top of that stuff, I was obsessed with E forty, of course, obsessed with anything Bay Area. Yeah, the Souls of Mischief, all of all of that whole crew, the Mystic Journeyman, like Grouch and Eli, all that stuff. Zion, I anybody from the Bay, I was I was listening to Mac Dre, of course. Yeah, and then also. Also big into like Cash Money Records at the time, so all of that stuff. Would you characterize yourself as bad about it at the time? <laughs> bad about it, but that's no limit, right? So, oh yeah, it was yeah. Uh, would you say that when the light hit the ice, it twinkled and glistened? There you would... go. That's exactly what I would say every time I cover Darnia City. Um, but uh, yeah, but I was also into No Limit. Although if I had to choose, I was probably always more on the Cash Money side. I, I think that always resonated with us more in the Bay because it was bouncy. New Orleans, New Orleans and Oakland have a lot of a lot of interesting intersection musically because they also have a lot of interesting intersection historically. So yeah. not not least Master P himself. Yeah, Master P himself living in Richmond, but that stuff his was so much more like slowed down all the no limit stuff. So I I loved the cash money side of things. It still kept a lot of that New Orleans bounced feel to it. Not that I didn't love a lot of no limit records also. And then uh I was always really into like freestyle fellowship and all the the sort of LA underground scene stuff. Yeah, those were probably the things that I was I was most into at the time, but I was also just listening to everything. That was me and me and Bill who is in clipping with me now, but we like since we were I don't know, probably 10 or 11 years old, had been like going to the record store every Tuesday back when new things used to come out on Tuesdays and just like grabbing every you know cd we we could get our hands on that we could afford um like scrounging through like the used bins and stuff to try and you know get stuff that was a little bit old but that we could still afford to get was being from oakland or being from the bay a big part of your identity as a teenager it was certainly like the bay at large i was because at that point i think my mom was living in el cerrito and my dad was living in Oakland. So I was just kind of like this general East Bay kid. And I went to Berkeley High School. So that that was definitely a, a big important thing to me. Not as I didn't shout it all the time as much as I did, I think, when I left. When I realized sort of how different everywhere else was, it became like, oh, I actually have to. <laughs> this is the thing I have to say all the time and wear on my chest all the time. And like, do, you know, like, I started once I went to college I like only wore and pretty much to this day will like only wear shirts that have some sort of like inside joke about the bay on them. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're describing an entire drawer with an it's it shirt yeah. on top in my house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. Like just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them and like and everything everything Oaklandish makes I have, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I need I need all of it. I need people to know. I don't want to have to tell you. Like you should know as soon as I walk in the door <laughs> where I'm from. It's funny like I I went to college and uh, I was doing comedy and college radio and my two buddies who were both from Southern California who I, who I work very closely with, uh they used to do this character that they called the city critic. And it was just one of them would say the name of a crit of a city, and the other one would say F minus. And then, like eight years later, they said to me, "You know, that was just our impression of you, right?" <laughs> and I was like, "Sorry, sorry, I like where I grew up." Yeah, I know, right? It's like so. I don't know. We get such a bad rap for being haters because I guess maybe we are. But yeah, like, I think it's I'm, fair. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fair. I do like. St- <laughs> Still, am constantly comparing everywhere to to Oakland, being like, "Well, yeah, it's not it's not Oakland, but I guess I will live here." Uh. You know, we were talking about the way that the living and growing up, especially in in the Bay, can lead you to ignore subgenre definitions and scenes in in hip hop. And mm-hmm. I wonder how you see clipping, which is the hip hop project that you're best known for fitting into the broader world of hip-hop because it's very distinctive music yeah i think it's interesting when we started when the three of us me and bill hudson 
uh, who we've been, you know, friends since third grade. And then Jonathan Snipes, who he and Bill were roommates their freshman year of college. So we've all been around each other a very long time. And when we started working on clipping in 2011, I guess was when I sort of came on board. It was like a noise remix project before that. We were all just, we really wanted to work together and we were searching for the way for the three of us to honestly participate in this art form that we loved so much. And we all made music in different ways. And I had been making, you know, rap music of my own for a long time and and all, all of this other stuff. Bill had been making a ton of, like, experimental and noise music. Jonathan had a great elect, uh, electro project called uh, Captain Ahab. And this was, like, sort of an experiment in, well, what do the three of us who all you know, love rap music and participate in it in varying degrees. Like, what's the way for us to make something together? And so clipping really evolved into this thing that is like, it's experimental in the sense that we are we are constantly sort of trying a thing out and being like, does this equal a rap song? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, then I think we can put it on an album, you know? <laughs> So that's that's kind of the hype. Like we we decided early on that there'd be no first person. I would never write in the first person. That was the first sort of huge experiment, right? If we remove first person narrative entirely from rap music, is it still rap music? Because so so much of the genre is kind of beholden to that. And to us, it still did. It also involved like sort of using and examining different ways to use a bunch of essentially like rap cliches, right? What are the trappings of a rap song that everybody will recognize? And if we like fill this song with no center with them, will people still recognize it as a rap song? So we had a whole bunch of conversations like that. What is the, you know, instead of these hi-hats, these like ratchet snares or ratchet hi-hats, like if we roll a ball bearing around in this metal thermos... (laughs) But it makes something that is rhythmically similar. Does that still do the same thing to us when we hear it? Holler out your city if you ride for it. Let them know why you die for it. Same reason all these riders get. So it's all medicinal. Now what you want, buy, homie? Vibe, vibe, my, my. Boss talk, boss talk, game rich, game rich, name game, name game, gang signs, gang signs, work on the phone, call it baseline, yup, line dance like a hold down, pimps up, daytime, whole block of ghost town, ghost ride, ghost face, G's get ghost in a moment, pour a little for the ghosts of the dead homies, deadpan voice singing tin pan alley songs, panhandling in front of tourists with their camera phones, get it how you live, or live till you get it. Get it in when the stash low and it's no cash. Get it in and you're riding no L's, no tag. Get it in and she looking like you ain't. It was a bunch of things like that and us sort of examining the the things, other things in rap that we love and figuring out how then we do a version of that that feels honest for these three people. And so that's that's sort of what clipping always was for us. I think in terms of the sort of genre defying aspect of it. It allowed us to just be like, we should make, we should do something with this because we love it. So this whole new album is kind of an homage to horrorcore, right? Which is a, a real like, I don't know, in my mind is is pretty Memphis centric, or at least, you know, Three Six Mafia being kind of like the the giants of it. Not that there weren't also like the Gravediggers out of New York or whatever. And, and, and to a degree, like the Ghetto Boys out of, out of Houston. I feel like I should say the Insane Clown Posse. ICP for sure, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, so like Bill and I grew up like going to get those 3-6 Mafia tapes from this liquor store in Emeryville. It's like drive-through like mixtape slash liquor store. Uh, and so, <laughs> so there, there's like a big love of that subgenre of hip hop. So a lot of this album was like, well, Jonathan scores a ton of horror movies. We're all genre heads, like in terms of of the art that we consume, what could be our contribution to this sort of splinter sect of of rap music that we love? So I think that for us, like a lot of it ends up, at least in the beginning, being a pretty like intellectual process, which makes sense because there's a ton of, you know, useless degrees between the three of us. (laughs) Um, 
So like when you get all three of us in a room, like there's a ton of dissecting of a thing that happens. But ultimately, I think what we're chasing is a is a feeling that we feel when we listen to this music that we like. So hopefully, at least for the people who really like it, the result is something that you feel. And and if you happen to notice all the like dumb, like technical or referencing things that we're doing in there, that's cool, too. But we hope it doesn't rely on that. I'm really interested in the idea of writing rap music without the first person, but I want to talk a little about aesthetics first. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to noisy hip hop or noise music before? Yeah. So, I, you know, because Bill was always, was when he moved to LA, sort of started getting into the noise scene. So I would go to his shows all the time if he was playing in the Bay or, or down in LA when I was there. So I yeah so yes I was listening to noise music through him and then like you know the noisy hip hop stuff I listened to all hip hop so like if there was someone rapping on it I was probably listening to it you know I remember listening to I mean I think obviously you could say you know Public Enemy was a very right noisy yeah band. I mean um, Bomb Squad is yeah but like the... I, I remember when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and the Cannibal Ox album came out. Oh, God, it's so good. It's still (laughs) good. Have you listened to it lately? Because I did happen to listen to it like a few months ago. It's still so good, man. Life's ill. Sometimes life might kill. For the mega five digits, grab mic, mic strike type hill. It's life real. I keep bills when life feel like earth don't spin. Whirlwinds might blend. Life's at a standstill. Dangerous because man kills and still cats. The experience that I remember having was listening to it thinking, that is genuinely amazing. That's an extraordinary achievement. I do not ever wish to listen to that again. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Because I had the total, and I guess this makes sense, right? But I had the total opposite experience. Well, not the opposite. I I thought the same thing as you. It was like, this is totally amazing. This is like, what an incredible thing. I have to figure out how to do this. (laughs) Uh, Which is kind of, I guess, as a rapper, right? That's the... That's the first thought whenever I hear anything that I love that I've never heard before or that I don't know how to do. It's like, I got to figure out how to do this. This needs to be part of my arsenal of things. And like be, uh, beyond just like the the sort of wild kind of musicality that LP came up with for that band, there's also like the... I love Vast Air as a rapper. Like, I don't know. There's like... A lot of technique, but also with a lot of space in it. And I I remember listening to that album a lot to try and figure out, I don't know, just how do you say something that is weird, like genuinely weird, but also super fly? Because so much about making a good rap song is having a bunch of lines that people want to say with you, you know? (laughs) And he was so good at that. You just wanted to like rap along with him all the time. Okay, well, let's talk about the first person part of this mm-hmm. because as a fellow over intellectualizer, uh-huh. <laughs> I wrote my undergraduate thesis at, I didn't go to Brown. I went to UC Santa Cruz, uh-huh. um, but I wrote my undergraduate thesis about identity strategies and hip hop and mm. identity. And the first person is one of the fundamental building blocks of all hip hop like all hip hop from you know picking a picking your own rap name not using your own name often is is an act of saying i am this you know yeah and i wonder to what extent you feel like that act is removed from clipping in choosing not to speak in the first person it is to a degree, and I think, you know, a big part of that, though, is because hip-hop relies on authenticity, right? Even if it's the imagined authenticity, right? We have to, while we are listening to the song, and this doesn't apply to, to real life, fun, like, fundamentally, and I think practitioners tend to understand this. Sometimes fans don't, but I think these days fans are getting more used to it, but, like, while we are listening to the song, we have to believe that Rick Ross knows the real Noriega. Right. Right. We have to believe that. Even if he um, was a correctional officer. 
Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't matter. What matters is while we are listening to the song, it has to feel so genuine. Yeah, I mean, um, it's like a kind of it's like a kind of hyper reality. It's different from the fiction yeah. of a film generally, um, right? But and it's not literal truth generally, right. um, but it's a it's a kind of thing that we that feels purely real as an emotional and intellectual experience. Right, right, exactly. I am such a nice person, right? Like just, <laughs> just as sort of a blanket statement, right? And so are Bill and Jonathan. But we really wanted to make some very angry music or some very off-putting music sometimes. What is the way that we can get away with participating in that in this form of art that's not like, it's it's different in a sense than noise where you, you know, because because there's this lyricist who's going to be storytelling like you it, it's different than any other instrumental music form once you put somebody in the front saying things right and then particularly with rap you're always going to assign the kid so like it, nobody most people don't even notice that we're not speaking in the first person in this band like it doesn't because we're so used to just assuming like i'll watch people write about clipping all the time or it's like you know david is talking about walking down a hallway in the depths of like blah 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 like David's not saying anything right like, he's literally just describing a scene but we still get used to assigning a, a first person narrative to it so yeah I, th- I think we do remove some of that but for us it actually ends up being more honest in some ways and that I don't have to pretend that I am these things and I can be very upfront about the fact that I am a storyteller in this moment because we are only telling stories and most of them are like hyper real to the point where you have to assume they're fictional unless you know i mean unless you also are piloting your spaceship into the depths of of outer space something within this one's different the others died so easily and he is so persistent he never did bleed out and fever couldn't kill his system Though it was pumped through all the vents in the event of a total loss of control. He quotes Kendrick's control verse and spews his vitriol into the echoes of the bowels of this floating metal hull. And holds his pillow for dear life while he grinds his teeth at night. And he rarely makes requests except to say, turn on the lights. But there is so Yeah, much so I think there's, there's a lot of that going on there with us. Was like not wanting to front because you can't in this art form. You really can't. And so... You know, it was a, it was again for us like a way of honoring. We're kind of traditionalists in a lot of ways, and l- literally the most radical thing we do is removing the first person from, from the from the writing. Do you think that part of the reason that it's a useful technique for you is that it can be hard to make room for being a nice sweet boy in hip hop? Maybe, or maybe I haven't found a way to do it in ways that I like, right? Like, uh, Chance has found a great way of doing that, right? Chance Although, is so I mean, his... the, I'm a huge fan, but I think the reaction to his most recent record, the negative reaction to his most recent record, reflects the peril in doing that, which is like either you get it perfect or right. people are really going to come at you. No, it's true. It's hard. I, yeah, I'm not saying it's not hard. Although I, I agree. It's a, it's a tricky line to walk. And I, but I think some people are, are figuring it out in ways that work for them. And I think certainly as as time goes on and we get a little bit, you know, I am of an age, and I would assume so are you. And like, uh, where I'm from, like, really matters a lot in in both my taste in rap music and like the way that I listen to it and the way that I identify with it that's just not true for kids now you know <laughs> right because because the internet and so like I think that is one of those things that is also going to change I think as just like there are more and more participants in the genre who are making things where they're really nice you know like but probably because I'm a little older like my taste in rap music tends to be stuff that skews a little darker, I think. But that is certainly like the the world that, that Clipping wants to inhabit because it was part, part of what we were trying to do was make like really aggressive, scary stuff. And so I think it does, it does help with that uh, because no one's going to believe me just rapping as myself in that same way. Even more with David Diggs after the break. Coming up, 
David Diggs is on Sesame Street, truly a renaissance man. And we'll talk about that after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This week on It's Been a Minute, I talk out the news with my Aunt Betty. I'm more concerned about the black men that I love than anything in the world because I just don't want to get that call. Also, parenting in the age of Black Lives Matter and the history of police reform. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and now nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes in for Jesse Thorne. We're replaying Jesse's interview from last year with David Diggs. He's an actor, writer, and rapper. He was in the original cast of Hamilton. He won a Tony Award for that. He's also the MC for the experimental rap group Clipping. His latest project is the TV show Snowpiercer, which he's starring in. It's a post-apocalyptic drama based on the Bong Joon-ho film of the same name. I had a listener. Sometimes I will post so-and-so's coming on the show. What should I ask them about on Twitter? <laughs> and generally what I'm just trying to do is just kind of get a sense of what people are interested in about their career. But I had a listener named Pamela Council who replied to my tweet. And she said something that I thought was so beautiful and insightful. She wrote, and it could also be interpreted as insulting, but I don't think she meant it as insulting, so I'm just <laughs> going to say that ahead of time. But she said, let's talk about the merits of authentic feel-good corniness, because he's a little corny, but yet we stand. <laughs> and, and I was like, I feel like that really captures that feeling of finding a place to make art that is true to yourself and complex and rich and reflects the experience of not just yourself maybe but your community as well mm -hmm. while also honoring values of like wanting to be a good person and nice in spaces where sometimes that is not encouraged yeah it's a good no that's a that's a really it's a very sweet tweet although I, I, like my immediate reaction was like you mean corny uh so hey <laughs> you're right to have that, that reaction you know and then i listened to it for real but saw, on the other hand the other yeah you're on sesame street <laughs> oh for sure i think that's the kind of corny she means i think she means it with with very deep love oh no i i i, I would assume so i hope so i'm gonna i'm gonna live with that i'm gonna say that that's the case but no i think um i you know what's wild <laughs> um I went to a I went to a Mozzie concert in LA and who's just among my favorite rappers maybe ever but for sure right now and me and Bill went to this Mozzie concert and afterwards my friend Dage who was DJing the whole night and is from Oakland you know was there he, and he he came off stage and we're talking and this dude comes up to he like everyone's sort of leaving the club and he walks up to me and he's like oh hold up Hold up, I know you. You on TV, right? I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, you Mr. Noodle. I was like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just like lost it. I'm at a Mozzie concert. You are saying? Just like among the more gangster rap of gangster raps you can get in 2019. And he started calling his friends over. You know, like, because he has kids. He was like, I look at your face all day, man. My kids love you. Uh, and that, <laughs> that to me... There's just so many weird moments like that in my life that have, that have have happened that I just you kind of gotta love it, right? I grew up watching the BET cipher and being like, I gotta be in one of those. The one I was in was with all the rest of the cast of Hamilton. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that was how I ended up on a BET cipher your, after having your made rap music. Theater friends. Yeah, me and my musical theater friends did a BET cipher after making rap songs since I was 
15 and never having done a musical until until I was in Hamilton. You know, like <laughs> that was what it took to get me on the BET side. <laughs> I was so moved by your movie Blind Spotting, which you co-wrote with Rafael Casal and mm-hmm. also co-starred in with Rafael Casal. And I think I was watching it as that tweet about the merits of corniness came in. Mm-hmm. And it described something that I felt very powerfully in the film, which is, you know, I interview a lot of people on my show who are from, you know, wor- tough urban worlds. And I myself am as well. And one of the things about being an artist or even just aspiring to be an artist is that it is fundamentally corny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there is a corniness to saying, I want to make art about it's very, you're very vulnerable in, in doing that. Right. And one of the things that I hear stories about, and I'm very interested in hearing stories about from guests on my show, especially ones who who grew up in situations where corniness was even potentially dangerous Mm -hmm is everyone has their own way of getting themselves the space to be an artist. Even if you're mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a rapper who became a rapper to be to launder drug money. Right. Everyone has a way to like make some room for themselves to be outside of the the stream of of danger mm-hmm. in doing this thing that is, you know, not always super welcome. Right. And in some ways, as I was watching Blind Spotting, I found myself looking at this story through that lens that your hmm. character, though he is a convicted felon, uh, hmm. who's you know been convicted of a felon- felony because he beat the crap out of somebody, that like what he is trying to do I- in the story is within the system and within the community that he grew up in, he is looking for a way to be a little corny like be an adult grown-up nice person Mm -hmm. which is really tough sometimes yeah yeah that's a great lens through which to watch that show and what's interesting what's so interesting about you know spending years with Raphael writing that film because it took us 10 years to to make it uh we we were we're both people who at some point in our in our formative years like in our teenage years became enamored with language and that and the various different ways of using that was sort of the the way that we found that space for ourselves you know along with a lot of other along with having very supportive parents who mm-hmm. were also weirdos and like all of these other things you know right um and along with also being in which uh, of the of the like sort of tough places you can grow up, the Bay Area is a, is a special one in some sense. Right. Senses. Right. Because like everybody's smart and everybody reads and everybody like you. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot. There are things that are dangerous in other places that aren't as dangerous there, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think um, of, you know, I, I grew up across the street from the most dangerous housing project in San Francisco, but I also grew yeah. up within walking distance of the, you know, the Mission Dolores and uh, legit rich people. (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. It's always all on top of each other. And so, and with the history that that is woven through, you know, we've always been in the, like, the Black Panther Party, right? With that, that is literally woven into the bones of Oakland. And like, they put such a premium on education. There's a reason that we get a lot of, of really interesting, exciting artists from, from that area is because I think we're all used to living with those dichotomies. But I think also, you know, so back to the language thing, we, we both were using that as a tool to find, to find our way out of these things or to, to, to muscle our way through these moments. Right. We're like, well, I have to, I have to, of course I'm an artist. Like I'm, I make rap songs. Or I'm, you know, or I'm doing this poetry slam thing. And that's like a cool thing to do here. So I can be cool. And you expect me to be a little bit weird. But I also, but you, you're going to accept it because of this virtuosity, right? And I say this all the time, like virtuosity trumps everything. (laughs) And so if you're really good at a thing, people will sort of let you do it no matter how weird they think you are. Right. But I, 
you know, Miles and Colin don't have that language that we do. They they are good with words, but they don't have, you know, they're not, even though they're the ages we are, they're not at the point that we are now, having done so much analyzing of our childhood and stuff. They're still living in the, in the moment where the where the danger and the threat is so real. And so that was always an interesting thing to try and navigate while writing that film is like tr- just sort of trying to remember what it was like to feel that way, but then also put it into the heads of people who like have not traveled as much as we have and whose worlds are significantly smaller than ours are. I was very grateful in watching Blind Spotting to see the subtlety of the way that a race is depicted and described in the film. You know, in that struggle for corniness, I often think how lucky I was that I was white because while being white in some ways alienated me from the community around me, mm-hmm. um, it also gave me the opportunity to hide in that alienation. Like, I think I learned very quickly that as long as I didn't look like I was trying to be down, mm-hmm. everybody would think I was just wandering through. <laughs> You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was just lost or whatever. (laughs) And if I could get enough chin up, eyes straight, you know, enough shoulders back, nobody would think I was the kind of loss where I should get jumped. I figured that took me a little longer. That took me to probably until I was 16. But Right. But same. You know what I'm saying? Like I used to I used to wear what I went from from when I was, you know, 13 all the way through high school, I only wore like loud colored pajama pants. That was my thing, <laughs> right? That was it to school all the way through high school. You know what I'm talking about? And, you're and like, telling I would me, wear these. And you're telling me, David, that you have musical theater friends? Yeah, right. Now, exactly. The pieces just aren't fitting together. Yeah, right. And I like, and I'm wearing all these crazy colored hats and stuff. Like, I, I, I looked like an insane person, but part of that is is the costume of it, right? People can because you don't have to say anything then. And I am terribly shy still to this day. And so uh, I I think when you when you put all of that on display uh, and you do feel like it's a representation of yourself because I loved those clothes, you know, and I could afford them. It was a way I could wear these wild things that I that were seven dollars at Target. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when you put all of that on display, you don't. No one really asks you to explain yourself. They assume everything they're going to assume. And like, again, virtuosity. I was like, a, I was, I was doing school plays at the time. I was pretty good. I was also like winning poetry slams and making rap songs and doing that. And I was on the track team and I was winning a lot of races. So I was a jock too, you know. So like, I could put on this sort of wild show all the time that didn't require anything from me except the costume. And it allowed me to just walk through the world as who I was in a lot of ways um, and not not have to confront it so much. <laughs> You've lived away from the Bay Area for most of your adult life. Mm. Um, how has your experience of the Bay Area and particularly the the East Bay where you grew up changed with time away what does it feel like to go back yeah well it's a trip you know and I go my family's all still there so I go back often but it is witnessing a place that changes so rapidly and I think also not being in the middle of it while it's changing like the changes just feel so drastic and so fast to me um, it's kind of like and, a, it's kind of like having a niece or nephew who's yeah going from toddler to preschool to yeah exactly you just like yeah they grow up so fast <laughs> but it's like but, the combination of the of the of the speed of the change and that there is like a little that you're checking in in intermittently in a way right exactly and and I think it's uh some of you know it's hard to deal with you know so much of blind spotting was about that too right about like trying these two guys trying to uh, everybody really everybody in that film is trying to find space for themselves in a in a place that is changing under their feet that they don't really have any say over yeah so you know that speaks a lot to as somebody who like wears Oakland on their chest all the time you know, to come back to Oakland to find a place that is so drastically different from the one I grew up in, in a lot of ways, is hard. And I find myself when I'm back there walking a lot, because when you walk through neighborhoods, when you don't just get from where you are to where you're going, you I actually get to see the things that are the same. And that there's some comfort in that, you know. So I'll like, 
you know, instead of driving a car or taking a lift or whatever, I'd like, we'll just walk as much as I can from, because then you get, then it does feel gradual in some ways. Oh, well this, this block is really built up, but all these houses are the same and like some of the same people still live in them. So, but yeah, it's, it stresses me out and like, you know, just changes plans. I had always thought I would like raise kids in, in Oakland and maybe I will, but I don't know. It's like, it's, it's hard to get a sense of that place now for me. Not that I don't still love it. And I think the thing that keeps me most grounded, too, is I still work with a lot of kids there. You know, I'm, I'm try, I am try to do, like, fundraisers at high schools there whenever I can. And I, I'm working with Turnaround Arts at Vincent Academy, which is right in West Oakland. And, and like, the, the kids are still the kids, you know? They're, they're the same sort of, like, wild, intellectual, curious, you know... just like unable to sit still like it still feel that's where I still feel the energy I mean it's where hyphy came from right like I I, you still feel that when you work with kids and so that that keeps me feeling very connected to the place I think my experience is both my parents still live in San Francisco where I grew up Mm -hmm. and my mother still lives in the neighborhood that I grew up Mm. in and She's still my mother, and she's <laughs> lived in the same flat for 30 years. Yeah. And she has my name on the lease because she thinks that her rent control is my inheritance. <laughs> but I feel like I've gone through so many extraordinary emotional changes over just being in that place. Where there mm. was a time where I almost like I could, felt like I couldn't be outside. Because mm-hmm. it was so upsetting to me, and I'm don't, I'm not yeah. trying to be histrionic about it. Like, no, no, I I get it 100. percent And San Francisco, also you're from San Francisco, where it's even it's even crazier, uh, you know. And I didn't, I never lived there. That's not true though. For a little while, my dad lived in in like the Castro area, just for like a few years, and I was already in college by then. But I, yeah, San Francisco, you know, I don't know, like who, what. Wh- who lives there anymore? I don't. <laughs> yeah, very rich. Your people. mom, actual yeah, rich like, people, and my mom, and no one I went to high school with. Yeah, literally no one. Everyone I went to high school with left for Oakland ten, fifteen years ago, and left Oakland for Vallejo. Right. Oh man, that's five exactly or the move. eight years ago, and and now have all just left the Bay forever. Right. Yeah. Both of my parents live in, in Richmond now. Uh, so they didn't quite make Vallejo. They're on this side of the bridge still. But but yeah. Yeah. It's 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 wild. And it is it is like sad. Most not even mostly. But one of the reasons it is sad is because like, you know, you love this place so much. And now everybody's coming here and taking away everything that you love about it and telling everybody else to come here. And we don't get to experience these nice things either, right? Because, like, we can't afford to live. So it's like, it's not that I wouldn't have also enjoyed, you know, an organic grocery store when I was (laughs) growing up in Oakland. We probably would have used that, but we didn't have access to it then. Now these new people have access to it, but we don't have access to it. Uh, And... You chant. You culturally change the place so much that, like, I don't do. I don't know if I even want to live there. Right? Maybe yeah. I should go to Stockton, where all of my friends live. So yeah, it's tricky. We'll finish up Jesse's talk with David Diggs after a quick break. Still to come, David tells us what it was like starring in one of the biggest musicals of all time, Hamilton. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
As protests sweep the nation, the subject of policing is once again being hotly debated. This week on Throughline, how police forces developed in the North and the South in the 19th century and expanded their power in the 20th century. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes in for Jesse. We're replaying Jesse's interview with the great David Diggs. He's a rapper who fronts the group Clipping. He's also an actor who's appeared on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Sesame Street, Undone, Snowpiercer, and lots more. He also starred in and co-wrote the movie Blind Spotting, which is great. And his debut role, Thomas Jefferson and the Marquis de Lafayette in the original cast of Hamilton. When you started workshopping Hamilton with mm-hmm. Lin Manuel Miranda, who wrote the show, <laughs> and you had never you had never done Broadway in any capacity. Yeah, what led you to believe that it was something that you should put your heart into, <laughs> and not something that you should keep at arm's length? It's so funny. So, like Tommy Kale, who directed the show, told me about the idea. We were doing a freestyle Love Supreme show. We were in New Orleans rapping at the Super Bowl we were doing this like live on ESPN like sort of this is your life style game with sports celebrities so (laughs) we're down there doing this uh, undisputably corny thing but again like framing is everything and one thing Freestyle of Supreme does very very well and this is woven into the bones of the show is that like is another space where corniness is is okay in some ways, in in all ways, as long as it's real, as long as it's honest, and as long as it's virtuosic, right? Yeah. Um, so we're doing that. And Tommy describes to me this show Lynn's working on. Oh, he's writing this, like, you know, rap musical about Alexander Hamilton. I was, and I, the first thing I said to him was, that's a terrible idea. Continue. <laughs> also uh, my first reaction. <laughs> everybody's first reaction it's a horrible pitch for a show um and especially if you know anything about rap music right it's like it's an even worse then because all you can hear in your head is the like the advertising for is is the like history through hip-hop right it's just exactly. like it's this stupid ploy to try and get kids to read books. you thought shakespeare was the original rapper Right. Turns out, <laughs> you know, but I, he he was like, well, will you come up to Vassar and do this a, a workshop of it? And I asked him if he would pay me and he said yes. And so I said, absolutely. I don't have any money. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, send me the stuff. And then Lynn sent me all of his demos, which is all him doing every part of every song. Uh, with like beats he made this before Alex Lacamoire had had fully orchestrated everything so like a lot of them were just like sort of kick snare and like horrible piano sound style beats he had made on GarageBand and they were so good the music was so good and it is because it was honest it's because Lynn who is an incredibly virtuosic writer and performer didn't pretend to be anything that he wasn't. He is a, a a man who is a nerd about history and a nerd about rap songs. And this was both of those things stuck together with as many historical references that I didn't catch as there were hip hop references that I did. You know. And so because of that, when even when listening to those early versions of these those songs, I was just like, this is so it's so good. Yeah. I'm totally down to be part of this terrible idea. And I didn't think anybody else would like it. Like, I, you know, you do a lot of things with your friends that you're like, this is brilliant. And no one cares. So <laughs> this was like going to be another one of those things for me. Like, yep, I'm totally down for this ride. I'm going to do this, this really dumb idea for a show with my friends because it's a good show that should exist. And they want me to be in it. And that's amazing. And then it was Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton. 
So he knows what to do in the trench, ingenuitive and fluent in French, I mean So you're gonna have to use him eventually, what's he gonna do in the bench, I mean No one has more resilience or matches my practical tactical brilliance You want to fight for your land back You know, the thing that, that drew me to it was that there weren't any lies in there It was just, it, it all felt super authentic coming from my friend who I, who I knew pretty well, you know what was it like to be the first rap music that 70% of the people sitting in the theater <laughs> yeah. had ever experienced in a, in a deep and meaningful way? Pretty, I guess, if, if I'm being honest, like pretty frustrating most of the time for me. I will say like... Hopefully, and what I think did happen to some degree, and we get this with clipping too, like to some degree, like I th- hopefully it's a gateway drug, right? It's kind of a good, Hamilton's a good gateway in both ways. It is good. It's it's good if you're a hip hop head who has never been into musicals and it's good if you love musicals and have never listened to rap songs. For real, like I feel like I want to stipulate having said that 70% number, like I don't think Busta Rhymes was out at the you know, revival of Thoroughly Modern Millie or whatever. Right, and, right. And, and it must have been he, awesome for him to see that in that context, too. Yo, yeah. I mean, and he, he, when we did it at the public, and he sat in the front row the, the, the first time he came, which, you know, there were, they would, of course, gotten him better seats. That's not a great place to sit, necessarily, in the theater. And it was so nerve-wracking for us, because here's this hero of ours with, like, 20 gold chains on. Uh, sitting right in the in the very front where the stage lights are actually hitting him as much as they're hitting us. Uh, and so you do the whole show for Busta Rhymes. And they asked him if they could move him to a better seat at intermission. And he said no. You know, he wanted to be right up in it. And then he would just come back to the public and hang out with us, like, throughout that run. And so that, that was amazing. But yeah, I think... So you got validation from things like that, from, from people who are sort of uh, revered in the hip-hop community, kind of being like, this is really great to see us up here, finally. To see us represented in a way that doesn't feel corny to us, but also, you know, is is crossing these lines. So that was, that was dope. But I think, you know, it's hard for me to take compliments in a situation like that. When there was that whole thing going on about me being like the fastest rapper on Broadway... Like, fool, I'm the only rapper on Broadway. What do you mean? That's not that's not an honor. I don't like, who are you talking about? <laughs> twist is twist is not doing into the woods. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, what are you talking about? The words per second that you're quoting don't matter. That's not a thing. And I can point to and also that's that song, like Guns and Chips is light work for me, right? I'm from Oakland. We've been rapping fat, been rapping fast since I was a child. Like this, you know, so like things like that where people are giving you compliments on things. I can't, I don't know how many times I had to hear, oh my God, what I love about this. I don't like rap music, but I love this because I could follow the story and I understood every word. And I just, it makes you want to strangle an elderly person, which is not a good feeling to have, right? But like... An elderly person who's doing their best to be nice to you, but just doing a terrible job. And you recognize it, and so you calm that immediate instinct, and you don't strangle anybody, and you say, thank you so much. But a lot of my time there was a lot of that, right? A lot of this sort of frustration with not even being able to enjoy other people enjoying the work, because I don't think they know enough (laughs) to enjoy this for the same reasons that I enjoy it, which is so dumb. Like, what a horrible way to think about something, but I couldn't help it, you know? So yeah, it was it it was a lot of that a lot of that element of it was really frustrating. More than anything, I mean like with Lynn Manuel Miranda who created the show, like he's a man so passionate. I've only met him in real life one time, but yeah. he's a man so obviously passionate about yeah. everything in the world that he's passionate about. Like a, <laughs> Correct. you know, like he's got a nuclear reactor inside of him that's always pushing right. him forward and and I can see that combined with the fact that this is his his creation you know in some ways it's like a magnum opus i see that driving him through any obstacle in carrying this show you are you know his buddy who's in it Mm. 
And while I, you have a great investment in it, having been part of it for quite a long time and, you know, through the development of, of it and so forth and, and being on stage, you're not mm. the creator of it and you're not also not right. that guy. And that sounds like a lot of work to do in addition <laughs> to the work, like in addition to, the, I mean this very sincerely, in addition to the work of being on Broadway, which is really hard work, right. like the work of, you know, the emotional work of knowing the different ways that your work is being received, that your art mm -hmm. is being received and having to accept some of the ones that you're less comfortable with in order to go on the next day. Yeah. What, uh, what a very astute observation. And what is, I don't think anyone's ever said that to me or acknowledged that to me. And that is so real, um, for everybody involved. Right. Uh, and that is, you know, I mean, you you navigate that with with anything that you're working as an actor, with anything that you're working on that's not that you didn't write yourself, you know, or that isn't something deeply connected to you from its inception. But yeah, so that uh, part of that is inherent in the job, right? You are a vessel. You're create. You are creating with somebody else's words and ideas and funneling that through all of your experiences, and that's what you put out on stage. Um, and so, then another part of the job is interacting with the public as they relate to that. For most things, most things aren't Hamilton. So most things don't get that much attention. Uh, so the job is way less. When something gets that much attention, it's great. It's wonderful. It's good for everybody when it does. But it is a lot of work to sort of navigate all of, uh, all of the attention that it gets on it. <laughs> Uh, my brother for a little while was living in New York, my younger brother, and even though, and I, I was still doing the show. This is like close to Tony Awards time. And like we, you know, I still eight shows a week. We finally found a time to, to go just get lunch and we go somewhere and just get some sandwiches or something to go. And we're walking around the street, like around the, the like uh, Flatiron area. And we got, you know, I was getting stopped like every, every 13 seconds by people being like, I never do this, but can I take a picture with you? Or <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. I know you must hate this, but, um, which is a funny way to start that interaction, but everybody does it. And I guess I would probably do it too, you know, <laughs> with an acknowledgement that you must hate this. And then also the admission that you're going to do it anyway. But my brother after we had been hanging out and I didn't even notice it anymore at this point my, after we'd been hanging out for maybe an hour he was like this is awful <laughs> like being with you on the street is awful <laughs> and it was kind of a moment for me where I was like you're right you're right it is but I am you know I'm out here as as an ambassador of this show also like none of this is is about me as much as everybody thinks it is right none of the acclaim felt like it had anything to do with me really because for me performing this character was a was a pretty weird like offshoot of all of the things I thought I was doing with my life and this is like not to be ungrateful for it changed my life in all of the right ways and like I had a wonderful time doing it but again like accepting accolades for it were particularly at the time and I'm 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 learning more to cope with it now I, with some distance I can understand more um sort of the importance of that of of the moment but it was it was hard in a lot of ways to to receive all of that for a thing that felt like had the least to do with me of any of the art I'd ever made in my life. <laughs> Javi Diggs, I'm so grateful to you for coming on Bullseye. I I so enjoyed the chance to get to talk to you. Me too, Jesse. I'm a huge fan of the show and have been listening for a long time, so it's it's really great to get to be on here. You're playing, dude. That's not true. Nah, man. No, it is. But I, I got you. I got I got your your episodes downloaded on the phone, bro. Fifty years about enough. Time to come back. They wanna call the bluff. Okay then. Time to come back. What up? Hail King Huey, do it for fluid, you knew it was moving forever. Loop it, the truth is the movement was really too clever. Who is the newest to do it? Pursuing a David Diggs, folks, together. clipping. Their album from last year, There Existed an Addiction to Blood, is available to buy and stream. 
You heard a little bit about it in this interview, but David also starred in and co-wrote the movie Blind Spotting. It's a gripping, really human story about police violence and gentrification. You can rent or buy it digitally or stream it on HBO now. They tried to take out every military leader, but you was born to be a martyr, and that doesn't mean a thing because that body really me. Fill it up. Your history is one you might consider killing for. This ain't the they taught you when you went to kindergarten. What you need to know is in the... Queen Angela done told y'all. Grass path through. So what y'all talking about? Hands up, don't shoot. Look back. Blood on the ground. Look straight. They still shooting. Jump back. Still here. Now what that tell you about death? Death ain't You got to... That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around various parts of the country. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Mine is thanks, Jesse. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. If you knew the passion that grew on a mask because they would never see in the basics. Geronimo, Erica, Gregory with their faces. And every book record of CD even made the MP3s lace it. Brother Malcolm done told y'all by any means. So what y'all talking about? All on the same team. Look back. Blood on the ground.